Sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up in their arms. But they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness, with the bands of love. And I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws. And I bent down to them and fed them. Here in this section, God lays out his credentials as a loving father. And get a load of what he says in this list of what he's done for them. He has loved them from the beginning. From before even they were a nation. He's rescued them from slavery in Egypt. That's referring back to the Exodus when he pulled them out of that land of slavery and oppression. 
He called to them as they put themselves in danger, wandering off to other gods, chasing after the Baals. He called to them. He cared for them. He taught them to walk. Think of the patience that involves. I, I, I didn't really know uh, how much patience really teaching children to walk actually takes until I had kids myself. Imagine God all those times that falling over and then picking up and trying again, and falling over and picking up and trying again. It's a wonderful, loving image of a patient father teaching his child to walk. He lifted them up in his arms. He, he held them. It's a picture of God picking them up. How much more of a loving picture than you can get than a father with a child in his arms? A parent lovingly holding their child. He healed them. You notice that there? They did not notice that it was I who healed them. In verse 3. Might be pushing it too far, but if you think about it, these are childhood pictures, aren't they? Perhaps it's that picture of, you know, your child falls over, you know, greatest enemy, and daddy comes along and picks them up, and the tears start to come, and you get your plaster out, and you sit it over, and you have an argument about putting your plaster on, and then you get a piece better. That's the sort of picture that we've got here. God caring for his child, healing his child. It says he led them with cords of kindness in verse 4. I think the image there really is, if you've seen those baby, not quite leads, because that makes it sound like they're a dog, uh, and I get really annoyed when parents, you know, you say, oh, I've got this child, and somebody says, oh, I've got this dog, and tries to make out, it's the same thing. Um, but you know, you've got those sort of harnesses that children can wear, and you can sort of, if they run off, you've got hold of them. That's the sort of picture here. It's as though God has got his protection around them. Perhaps an up-to-date version of that would be more like, you know, he's, he's got them in a bush chair of kindness. He's directing them, he's driving them in love, leading them. That's the picture there of the cords of kindness. The next bit is a little bit unclear, uh, where it talks about, I became as one who eases the yoke on their jaws. Now, either Hosea is changing into an animal metaphor, which is possible, if you look on the back of your notice sheet, you'll see in Hosea... 4 verse 16, he talks about Israel as a stubborn heifer. If that's the case, then the picture is one who helps a calf or a heifer that's struggling and eases the yoke on their mouth, takes off the muzzle, if you like, to help them. There is a possible other translation, keeping with the child imagery, if you just change one of the vowels, then it's one who lifts up a child to his cheek. It's as though he's caring for them, again, lifting them up and, and kissing them. Either one of them, though, shows a caring image. It's a loving image of God as their father. And then finally we see there at the end of verse 4 that he bent down and fed them. And again, I didn't realise quite what an effort and loving thing it is to feed a child uh, until I'd had children. Uh, really, it takes quite a lot of effort and patience uh, and getting quite messy, really. But it's showing that God feeding them, caring for them, providing for them. So all these images paint the picture of a loving, heavenly Father. Perhaps this is some of the most tender images we see, really, of God in the whole Bible. So it's worth pausing to remember that actually the Father that we're talking about here is our heavenly Father. 
we share the same one. This is how God treats us. He cares for us. He loves us. He's patient with us. He gets his hands dirty, if you like. But it's so easy to forget, isn't it? And that's exactly what Israel had done. They'd forgotten. Because how had Israel treated him? Well, have a look at verse 2. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. They're behaving like a petulant teenager, aren't they? Apparently now there's a, a name for a child who's three who behaves like a teenager, a three-nager. Uh, I'm wondering whether uh, maybe one of our children might be at that stage. Um, but the idea of sort of rebelling and going away. The more that God calls to them, the more they seem to have run away. Have you seen that in the park sometimes when you're not there or early? You, know, you get that parent, you come back here! And the child just keeps running further and further away. But often the dangerous thing about it is that they're running into danger, aren't they? The parents pulling them back lovingly, but they're so stubborn that they're going to run away. And that's the picture that we get of Israel here. They don't seem to realise the fatherly care that God has shown them. And again, how much is that like us? God is kind to us again and again and again. And what do we focus on? The hardships. The difficulties. How do we treat God? Well, we sin, don't we? And every time we sin, it's like running that bit further away when our Father is calling us back. Every time we sin, it's like turning our back on Him and running away. See, Israel here, if you're a Star Wars fan, have done a Kylo Ren on God. If you haven't seen that Star Wars film, Kylo Ren stabs his father and Solo in the fruit. Sorry if that's a spoiler if you're going to go see it. But that's a bit like what we do. We've got this loving Heavenly Father who longs to bring us back home. And instead we betray him and turn our back on him. And that's exactly what Israel has done as well. And so, our Father crushes us. Have a look at verses 5 to 7. They shall not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria shall be their king, because they have refused to return to me. The sword shall rage against their cities, consume the bars of their gates, and devour them because of their own counsels. My people are bent on turning away from me, and though they call out to the Most High, he shall not raise them up at all. God is going to send Israel to Assyria. It's going to be Egypt all over again. In fact, many translations, and the footnote in the ESV as well, uh, have that in verse 5 as they shall surely return to the land of Egypt. Uh, so the NIV uh, has it, they will, will they not return to Egypt and will not Assyria rule over them because they refuse to repent? Actually, Hosea has already said that they're going to return to Egypt, but he's talking about it figuratively. He's saying they're going to go back to the slavery that they had before. God is going to rewind history and put them back at the time before they were a people. A time when they were oppressed. He's going to hit undo on their relationship with each other. And because they don't want God as their king, Assyria will be their king. They've rejected God as their ruler, haven't they? They want him as one of many gods, one of many helps that they can choose from. They don't want a God who can call the shots, who can tell them what to do. And so, 
the might of the Assyrian army will come against them and they'll prevail. They'll consume the bars of the city gates. That means they're going to be left utterly defenseless. It's as though the walls have come down. No chance of retreat because there'll be nowhere to run. And the sword is against them because of their own counsel. That is, they'd rather listen to their own counsel, their own advice, than to God's. And that counsel, which has been going to all the other nations for help, and hoping that they wouldn't realise they'd been going to all sorts of different nations, has landed them in the trouble that they're in now. But again, don't we experience that too before we point the finger at them? Don't we trust in our own cleverness? Often only to find that we've dug ourselves a hole. That phrase that they're hung on, sorry, that they're bent on turning away, they're bent on idols. The phrase literally there is they're hung on them. It's almost as if they've given themselves a rope to hang themselves by. They're hung up on turning away from God. But in doing so, they've hanged themselves. And even if they do call to God, there at the end of verse 7, God's not listening anymore. God won't help them. Nothing they can do now can make God bring them back from the destruction and dispersal across the Assyrian Empire. It's a very, very bleak picture, isn't it? But what comes next then should hit us as a surprise, shouldn't it? Here we see that the Father calls us back. Have a look at verses 8 to 11. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I make you like Zeboim? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim. For I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. They shall go after the Lord. He will roar like a lion. And when he roars, his children shall come trembling from the west. They shall come trembling like birds from Egypt and like doves from the land of Assyria. And I will return them to their homes, declares the Lord. Here we see God calling them back. Now, I don't want hands up, but just give us a nod. Has anyone here actually ever heard of Admer and Zeboim? Again, lots of shaking heads. And that's sort of the point. Admar and Zeboim were two minor towns that were destroyed along with Sodom and Gomorrah when God destroyed those cities. Not only were they destroyed, but they're essentially a footnote in history. The fact that we don't know who they are, most of us, actually is part of the point. If this was on Pointless, the TV show, they would be the pointless answer that nobody remembers. They're a bit like the Accrington Stanley of cities. If you remember that advert, maybe some of the older folks do. Accrington Stanley, who are they? Exactly. And that's the point with Adma and Zeboim. They were destroyed in, in fire and hail and brimstone, and yet they're unheard of. And God is saying, I can't let that happen to you, friend. I can't let you be destroyed and don't even remember who you are. Destroyed and forgotten. So God will not destroy them completely. You see here that his heart recoils within him. Literally, it's turned within him. It's changed within him. 
He will have compassion on them. That word compassion is related to the word to sigh. It's like, oh, Israel, I can't do this to you. So there will be a restoration. God will take them back. As the father takes back the prodigal son in Jesus' parable. As Hosea took back Gomer and her children. And after that, he will not bring judgment again upon them. God is not going to lose his temper with them and go ballistic on them. Because he's God and not a man. He doesn't lose his temper. God will bring them back. It says here that God will roar like a lion. You get that picture of uh, a bit like when the lion goes in, where they stand on top of the hill, and the lion roars and everybody listens. Calling his children home. And trembling they return. Trembling like doves. If you remember before in Hosea, he talks of being, being like silly doves, going from person to person, place to place. Well, here they know where they're going. They're going back to their father. Why are they trembling? Well, because of that good C.S. Lewis coat. He's not a tame one they're going back to. And he is good. He's their heavenly father, but he's also the God of the universe. He's a God who's not to be trifled with. And they've turned away from him. So he calls like a lion, majestic and mighty to his children, and brings them back and settles them in their homes. No more to be moved. So really here we see that pattern that we saw right at the beginning of Hosea, don't we? We saw marriage, adultery and restoration. Well here we see fatherhood and runaway and restoration. They've come back to their father. So that's the pattern of the passage. Our father cares for us. Our father crushes us. Our father calls us back. But there are some problems with the passage. First one is How? How can God relent? How can God change his mind? How can God not destroy them utterly when we've seen how they have treated him? How can God not send total disaster upon Israel? Because we said at the end of that chapter, there's nothing that they could do to stop it. Well, it's nothing that they do. That's the thing. It's not something that they've cleverly come up with. No, actually, God is doing something. And what God is doing, we don't see here, but we see elsewhere in the Bible. Because whenever we see God showing mercy in the Bible, it's always because of the cross of Jesus. It's always because of the cross. Without the cross, there is no mercy. So God here holds off his wrath. He holds it back, and then he pours it on Jesus as he dies on the cross. Romans tells us exactly as much. Again, on the back of your notice sheet, you'll see Romans 3, 25. Jesus Christ, whom God put forward as a propitiation, a, a sacrifice of atonement, by his blood, to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. What it's saying there is that God had passed over sins that had gone before. God had seen them, but he chose them to pass it over, waiting for the cross. It's as though, at this point, he looks through time to the cross, so that he could show mercy, waiting for the cross to come, so he could pour out his wrath there. Now, for us, living after the cross, it works the other way around. 
When we sin, sin, God looks back to the cross and pours his wrath out there. It's as though at the cross God was looking forward through history, seeing all the sin that we commit and pours it on Christ. So this answer to the strange sort of gear shift in the middle of our passage is only really sorted out at the cross. How can God forgive? How can God relent? Well, it's because of the Lord Jesus Christ, because of his sacrifice on the cross. So that's how. The harder question, and more controversial question for our passage, is where? And what I mean here is we've spoken about restoration, we've spoken about them coming back, when the children of Israel will return and settle in their homes. The problem is that historically that never happened. Let's have a look at 2 Kings 17 24, it's on the back of your notice sheets. 2 Kings 17 24. This is what happens a bit further down the line. And the king of Assyria brought people from Babylon, Kutar, Abba, Hamath, Sepharavaim, and placed them in the cities of Samaria instead of the people of Israel. And they took possession of Samaria and lived in its cities. So unlike the southern kingdom, who get sent away and come back, the northern kingdom, they get replaced. People are brought in from across the Assyrian Empire, all those unpronounceable places, and settled in the northern kingdom. They become the Samaritans that we meet in the New Testament. But they're not ethnically children of Israel. They're not the people coming back, they're a different set of people. If you read the rest of that chapter, they start to worship uh, God, but only because one priest is brought back to teach them. So they get replaced. You get the old one that appears in the New Testament who sort of took refuge in the southern kingdom. But the people as a whole never return. They don't come back. So, what have we got here? Well, historically they've been referred to as the ten lost tribes of Israel. Because they're lost. We don't know exactly where they went. So we have four serious options this morning as to when this happens. The first one is it didn't. The prophecy failed. It didn't happen. Perhaps if you're looking into Christianity this morning, you might think that's the most probable. But I'd like to show you that there are other options as to how this works out. The second option is that the fulfilment is still to come. It's some way in the future. Now some Christians hold this point of view, that actually sometime in the future all of the ten lost tribes of Israel will come back and settle uh, in the land of Israel, in the Middle East. Now, if that's right, then this prophecy has nothing to do with us, really. You might want to argue why we should work towards people coming back. But really, it's not for us at all. It's for a different group of people that are lost somewhere among the nations. I don't think that's a very likely option, but some Christians hold that as a possibility. Third option is that the fulfilment is spiritual, in the church. And again, some good Christians hold this view. The prophecy is fulfilled as Christians come into the church. So the prophecy is sort of spiritualised to make it not quite mean what it sounds like it means. Now this makes it relevant to us because we're in the church, but I don't think that's how scripture presents it. The fourth option, which I think is you might guess is the one I'm going with. <laughs> it's always the fourth one, is it the last one? We have to do it in the middle. The fulfilment is Christological. That is, it's the prophecy is fulfilled in Christ. Why do I think that's the best option? 
Well, because I think that's how Scripture sees it. In fact, Scripture tells us as much. So again, on the back of your notice sheet, you'll see there uh, Matthew chapter 2, 14 and 15. This has a quote from this passage in Hosea. This is Jesus, uh, just after the, the sort of Christmas story that he gets. And he rose, that's Joseph, and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt. And they remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. So Matthew is saying this passage is fulfilled in Jesus. Either that or Matthew is seriously ripping that verse out of context, isn't he? And making it into something that it never was. Or in some way that passage here that we're looking at must refer to Jesus. So if Jesus is the son in Egypt, then his return is the son's return, isn't it? His return is their return. His final restoration is their final restoration. Jesus, the one true Israelite, the true Israel, who passed where Israel failed, the true Ephraim, the son of Joseph, the true son of God that we're talking about here. In fact, as we've looked at the pattern that we've talked about, the pattern of the passage, couldn't it just as much apply to Jesus as son? God cares for Jesus. God crushes Jesus. God calls Jesus back. Doesn't that work as well? That's because Jesus is the son, isn't he? The same model goes throughout scripture for the son of God. Jesus was cared for by God in eternity crushed by God on the cross, and restored in his resurrection. So Jesus really is the fulfilment of this whole passage. Really, if we want to understand it, we have to see it through Jesus first. So the final question we need to think about is then who? Who is it talking to in the passage? Is it just talking to Jesus? Well, no. It's for you and me. But not because it's been spiritualised and sort of changed into a different meaning, but because we are united to Christ by faith through the Spirit. That's the Spirit's work, uniting us to Christ by faith. It's like we're inside Jesus as he's doing these things. Or as the Scriptures put it, we're in Christ. In him we've been adopted as sons. You see there in Ephesians five, uh, 1 verse 5. He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. We often get the adoption bit, but we miss the through Jesus Christ bit. If that's true, if we're adopted in him, then his return becomes our return. The New Testament, in fact, sees this playing out in the rest of history as all nations come into the church, into Christ, under Christ's headship. Jew and Gentile are adopted into God's family. Because, of course, that's what the lost ten tribes have become, haven't they? The Gentiles. They're mixed among us now. And as God brings the Gentiles in, he brings the tribes in as well. But it happens first in Christ, in his return. And then we return in him. His return is our return. And so, because we've been adopted into that, his father becomes our father. That's part of why we can listen to this passage together. That's why we can pray the Lord's Prayer. Our Father. Jesus didn't just pray my Father. 
our Father. But that also means then, if, if this is for us, we need to listen to this passage as well. If we are sons by being adopted in Christ, then we must listen to what God says to his children. And that means we mustn't be a petulant teenager with God, running away as he calls us back, <coughs> trusting in our cleverness or other things for our protection and security, but instead trusting in God alone. And God can and will crush us if we go astray. Not to destroy us, but to restore us. Hebrews 12 says this, God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate, son, illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. Sometimes God crushes us to cause us to repent, to cause us to turn back to him, to cause us to trust in him alone and not in the other things that we cling to. So he cares for us, he crushes us, he calls us back. Now some of us here this morning need reminding of that first truth, don't we? God cares for us, God cares for you. As a father cares for his child, so much that actually he came in the person of his son and died for us. We so quickly forget this, don't we, when life hits. We're prone to forget that God loves us. We need reminding about it a lot, don't we? And that's why the Bible reminds us about it a lot. Our Father cares for us. Some of us this morning might be feeling a bit crushed at the moment. And we need to remember that God sometimes does that for our good. Sometimes it's not God that's doing it at all, though God is in control. But we need to remember when those things happen that he's treating us as sons. He's actually saying, you're mine, I'm looking after you. So we need to listen to him and what he is telling us. We need to trust our Heavenly Father when those things happen. And some of us this morning need calling back. Some of us have been wandering away. And we need to come home. We can all be prone to wander at times, can't we? But we need to come back to Christ. We need to commit ourselves afresh to live for him. God is our heavenly father, isn't he? He cares for us. He wants us to come home. Our father is in heaven, hallowed. We need to pray that his kingdom would grow in our lives. That his will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. So let's pray that God would give us knowledge of his love for us, strength to trust him when he's crushing us, and that he would grant us repentance like the prodigal son to return to our Heavenly Father. Let's pray.